We are in week three of this series when we're asking this question, who are you? Who, who am I? Where we're looking at these questions of, of identity and what it means for us to find our identity, not in any of the categories that the world may give us to define us, but to how, what it means for us to define ourselves through and by Christ. You know, there, there are all, so many ways that we can define ourselves. There's so many ways that other people want us to define ourselves. They want us to define ourselves on the basis of race, on the basis of gender. Remember, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which as far as I can tell just means that women can thrive under great pressure and heat. They want us to define ourselves by politics, by, by who we voted for or who we didn't vote for, by what political party we support, by what faction within a political party we support. They want us to define ourselves along lines of socioeconomic class. I drive this kind of car and you drive that kind of car. I have a house with this many square feet and you have a house with that many square feet. They want us to define ourselves by our, by our sexuality. And I don't just mean LGBT issues here. I mean, look at what ads and shows would have us do. They would have us believe that we are nothing more than sexual desire and urges. Sometimes they want us to define ourselves by denomination. I'm a Baptist, you're a Methodist, or a Presbyterian, or non-denominational. There are all these these things out there that we're told we should use to define ourselves by. But I would say that as believers in Jesus, the primary thing that we need to be defining ourselves by is Christ. Now, I'm not saying that other stuff isn't important. I'm not saying that other stuff doesn't inform us and how we see the world and how we interact with each other. Of course it does. But it's not our identity. It's not who we are. And if we're defining ourselves by Christ, if we're defining ourselves by Jesus, then we've got to look at him. We've got to behold him. We've got to study him and figure out who he is and what it means for us to grow in Christ-likeness. To grow in that God-given, God-defined, God-ordained identity. The first week of this series, we, we, we saw that our God-given identity is found when we behold God, and especially God in Christ, God incarnate, God who came and dwelt among us. 
Last week we saw how in the aftermath of, of the uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus and then the Pentecost, um, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, that Peter and John were able to define, themse- define themselves and find their identity in Christ. Even to the point that when they were arrested and brought in front of the same men who had just weeks before sent Jesus to the cross, they were able to boldly proclaim the gospel and in fact say, I am so defined by Christ that I can't keep my mouth shut. Reminded of when Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the Pharisees tells him to quiet the crowd and he says, if I were to quiet the crowd, what? Even the rocks and stones would proclaim the gospel. This week, we're going to see how as we behold Jesus and as we root our identity in him and not in the things of the world, our view of others actually changes. And so we're going to be in Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. What we're going to be reading today is we're going to be reading the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, this is a passage that I know if you have spent time in the church, you have heard before. Even if you haven't spent time in the church, you are probably somewhat familiar with this story. It is one of those stories that sort of has, has transcended. And we hear about it, and we hear it, and we've studied it a lot. But what I'm going to ask you to do today is what I ask a lot when we study something and when we look at something that we think we're all familiar with. I'm going to ask you to try and listen to this story as if you are hearing it for the first time. I want you to put yourself in the position of those people who were sitting around Jesus when Jesus told this story and they've never heard it before. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He, Jesus, asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with, all your, with your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You answer correctly, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. 
This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, as we enter into this time of the study of your word, as we, as we study what it is to, to be a neighbor, what it is to follow these commands to love, what it is to, to find ourselves in you, to find and define ourselves by you, I would just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned a while ago, this is a very well-known parable. This may be the most well-known of the parables. Everybody, when I said Good Samaritan a few moments ago, you knew what this story was. It popped into your head. The interesting thing is, as well-known as this parable is, it's found only in Luke. Luke is the only one who, who, who gives us this parable Now, the first few verses, those verses 25 through 28, have parallels in Matthew and Mark where a teacher comes to Jesus and asks him what he must do to have eternal life, and Jesus responds um, in some way with the great uh, commandment. That that is, those are found in Matthew and Mark, but but the story, the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan is found only here. And there's sort, of, there's sort of four parts to this, and so we're going to work through those parts fairly methodically this morning, because each one of them is just, I mean, each, each one of them is just packed with stuff. And so we're going to work through them this morning, but, but only, only get some of it, and not all of it. So the first part is verses 25 through 29. And so this is the initial exchange between this expert in the law and Jesus. Between this expert in the law and Jesus. And so this expert comes up and and Luke tells us that he came to test Jesus. But, okay, so what is the test? I think there are two options here. I think one option is, and I think it's one that sometimes we read, and we assume, and that is that the, the, this expert in the law is, is asking a gotcha question. He's trying to trip up Jesus. He's trying to find him in some sort of, some sort of fallacy. Now, I'm going to be honest. I, I think that that is unlikely. Because what he's asking Jesus is, is what is at the very root of the Jewish identity. Every day, Jewish men would say the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, would say it every day. So I I think it's unlikely that he's asking this gotcha question. I think the second option is more likely, and the second option is this, that, that this is an expert in the law, and that he is genuinely trying to ascertain whether this guy who is teaching knows his stuff. If you are an expert in something and someone comes in and starts teaching that thing that you are an expert in, you want to find out whether or not they actually know what they're talking about, right? See, what's happened just before this is that Jesus has been, has been giving this teaching about the Father and the Son, and it's some stuff that sounds, might sound a little weird to this expert in the law. And so maybe he wants to figure out what Jesus' 
credentials are. It would be like this. It would be as if we decided to host some seminar on a Saturday afternoon on finances and somebody came in and they started telling stuff that sounded a little weird. And so somebody with expertise in tax law like or tax code like Jeff were to raise his hand and ask a very basic question just to make sure that this person was actually who they said they were. But here's the thing. What we don't know is we don't know why he's testing. Either one of these is a supposition. Either one of these is, a, is an assumption on our part. Because the text doesn't say. The text only says that the expert in the law wanted to test Jesus. I think what's much more interesting than trying to figure out why is to see what Jesus does. What Jesus does is what Jesus so often does. He flips it back. He's asked a question And he doesn't answer the question. What does he do? He asks another question. What he actually says is he goes, all right, Mr. Expert in the law, you want to know how to have eternal life? What does the law say? He's he's turning it back on this expert. And then after he responds with verse 27, and man, could we have an entire sermon series on verse 27, what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your soul and all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. After he answers with this, Jesus then takes the discussion and through saying, do this and live, forces this discussion into the practical and the personal. Because what he has is he has a man standing in front of him who has all of the head knowledge. He is an expert in the law. And yet he doesn't have the heart knowledge to understand how to apply it. And we see this there in the next verse, in verse 29, when this expert wants to justify himself. And again, we're left asking this question, why? Why does he want to justify himself? And we don't know. Luke doesn't give us an answer. So, so, so he, this is one of those things right now where, where I'm going to try and answer this question, why, with what I see in the text, but understand that this is my answer and not the text's answer. I think he's, he's asking this question. I think he's wanting to justify himself because he knows that just because he knows these commands, he, doesn't, he isn't following them. See, knowledge of what to do is not the same thing as doing it. Knowledge of what to do is not the same thing as doing it. Let's, let's give this expert a little credit here. He knows something that many of us don't. He accepts something about himself that many of us don't. He knows that he is not capable of doing what the love commands tell him to do. And so he seeks to justify and to draw a line and to get out of it. He knows that if he draws a line on who he loves, 
that, that it will be easier for him to follow that command. And so he wants to draw those lines, and he wants Jesus to draw those lines. I and mean, if we take a, a hard look at ourselves, we'll see that, that, that we aren't capable of doing this either. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart. All of our mind. All of our soul. All of our strength. All means all. Y'all, sorry. But all means all. All doesn't mean most. It doesn't mean 99%. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean certainly doesn't mean 85%. It doesn't seem mean the vast majority. All means all. And I want you to ask yourself the question, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Some of you have way too much NC State or Duke or UNC or Wake Forest gear to be able to say you love the Lord your God with all your... because because you love your sports team. And if you're loving your sports team, that means there's a part of your heart that's not loving God. See, we, we aren't capable of doing it. We aren't capable of doing that. And we're not capable of loving our neighbors. Because we want to draw lines all the time. We want to draw lines about who's in and who's out, about who, who's worthy and who's not. And we do that all the time. See, these are, these are questions of identity. And when we define ourselves as the world defines us, we get to draw these lines and we get to say, these people are acceptable and these people aren't. Brothers and sisters, that's what cancel culture is about. This drawing a line and saying, these people are in and these people are out. And let's be honest, the church was really good at cancel culture before the world discovered it. Because we were really good at drawing a line and saying, nope, those people are out. they got to clean up before they come in the back door. Man, I give the expert of the law credit here. He knows something and admits something about himself that for most of us is just too hard to do. So then we get to the second part of this passage. And this is the, sort of this introduction to the, ter- to the parable and the, and the first little bit about these, the first two men who come along. See, Jesus decides to answer this question, answer this question about who is my neighbor, this, this self-justifying question. Jesus answers it in parable. Jesus answers in parables a lot. And I think one of the reasons for that is because human beings are narrative-driven people. Man, we love a story. You want to compel somebody, tell them a good story. Take some time, some time to, to really dig into what people are talking about when it comes to things like marketing and advertising. And it's all about story. How you tell a 
story. Because that's, there's something inside of us that loves that. And there's something inside of us that, that shapes us, that, that allows stories to shape us in a way that sometimes the cold, hard facts doesn't do. One of the things that I am the most excited about, about becoming a dad, is reading to the kid. Reading all of those, all those books... Reading all those books that were, that were meaningful to me, Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. The Butter Battle book. Dr. Seuss, if you don't know. One of the more obscure Dr. Seuss books. Jack and the Beanstalk. Fairy tales. And my kid's not going to get the watered-down version of the fairy tale where... The wolf huffs and puffs and blows the house down and then is very apologetic about it and, and apologizes and then they all sit down and have a nice vegan kale dinner together. No, my kid's going to get the full version where the house gets huffed and puffed and blows down and the pig gets ate. Because there's something in these stories that helps kids learn and understand and process the world around them. And so Jesus knows that stories can help us learn and understand and process the world around us. And so he uses parable, and that's what he's doing, doing here. And so he sets the scene. A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, what does that mean? Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles. You know how far 17 miles is? If you walked along the interstate route from here to Cracker Barrel, if you went up 41 down South Chicken Road, down the interstate, off the interstate to Cracker Barrel is actually 16.8, but close enough. But you know what happens? You know what that road to Jericho has that the, six, the 17 miles between here and Cracker Barrel doesn't? Elevation change. People, I have driven through the Mississippi Delta. I have lived on the Gulf Coast. There is no place on earth that is as flat as Robinson County. Jerusalem is 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. That's 3,500 feet of elevation change in 17 miles. That's 205 feet per mile. Ask anybody who's a hiker. That's a lot of elevation shift. You feel that. You feel that going up or going down. Going up, it's your thighs, and going down, it's your knees. It's barren. There's no vegetation. And even though it's this elevation climb, the area around it is very hilly and rocky, and it's a perfect place for highway robbers, for bandits, for highwaymen to sit and rest and wait for the next person to come along. And that's what happens to this man. He's going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, literally down, 3,500 feet down. And at some point, robbers set upon him, and they, they strip him and rob him and beat him and leave him for dead. And then two other characters are introduced. One is a priest. And the priest comes along, and he sees him, and he walks to the other side of the road, and he keeps walking. 
and the other is a Levite. What do we mean, Levite? We don't have Levites, do we? Sunday school teacher? Music minister? Associate pastor? Comes along, sees him, walks to the other side of the street, and keeps walking. Again, we have nothing in this story. Jesus gives us nothing in this parable. Why the priest and the Levite did this. See, these are the, these are the religious folk. These are the folks who know these, these love commands, who know that they're supposed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the second is likened unto it to love your neighbor as yourself. They know that. But they, yet they both pass by on the other side. We aren't given any, any explanation. But what we do know is three things about them. We know that they saw him. We're told explicitly they saw him. The second thing we know is that they go move to the other side of the road. And we know that they did not help him. And that just as the robbers had left him for dead, they leave him for dead. Now we come to the third part of the parable, and this is, this is the meat. This is, this is the, the, where Jesus spends the most time. It's verses 33 to 35, and this is where we meet this one more character, the Samaritan. And we've talked about um, Samaritans um, a lot uh, relatively recently. And we're not going to get back into all of that, but, but, just, but just bear in mind this, that, that a Samaritan... And just having a Samaritan in the parable crosses all sorts of identity lines for Jesus' hearers. These are people who are viewed as ethnically suspect. They're viewed as religiously suspect. They aren't in the group. They have the wrong identity. And so what is this, this man who has the wrong identity, what does he do? He comes up to him. He sees him. And he has compassion. See, his response is, is, is totally different from the others. Instead of seeing him and moving to the other side, he, he sees him, he comes up to him, and he has compassion. This, this one who's, whose identity is all wrong. He's the wrong sort of person to be the hero of this story. And then he serves this man. He serves out of his own wealth. And it's costly. Olive oil and wine to, to tend to the wounds. And then puts him on his, on, his, on his own animal. Puts him in the back seat of his own car. And takes him to the inn and prepays two weeks worth of room and board. Two denarii would have gotten you probably about two weeks of room and board. Let's pay attention here. Jesus isn't saying, hey, love even the Samaritan. What Jesus, is, what Jesus does here is even more shocking. What Jesus is doing is He's using an unclean Samaritan. This person who would have been viewed as suspect and other and he's using them as an example of neighborly blood, love. See, Jesus messes up all of our preconceived ideas about identity. 
Jesus messes up all of our preconceived ideas about identity. So Jesus comes to the end of the story and we now come into the the fourth part and, and he turns it around again and he forces us to ask not who was the neighbor, but he's really asking us, am I a neighbor? Am I showing neighborliness to the people around me? Am I showing mercy? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The one who showed him mercy. Go and do the same. How do we show that neighborliness? How do we show that we're a neighbor through showing mercy to to everybody, regardless of social and worldly identities, ours or theirs? See, See, the expert comes along and he asks this question, and there are certain people that he just doesn't want to deal with. Samaritans are probably some of those people. And so, so he comes along and he's trying to exclude some. No, no, my neighbors are those people that are right around me that are just like me. But what Jesus shows is that, that love doesn't have calculable limits. That loving our neighbors is about us. Loving our neighbors is about us and whether we are doing what God called us to do, and whether or not others are worthy of that love. Let us not forget Romans 5.8. But God proves His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, when we have eyes that are focused on God, we will see the people around us in a new way and we'll be willing to pause our own agenda to help meet those needs. We don't know why the priest and the Levite didn't stop, but they didn't. They didn't pause their agenda. Man, their to-do list was too full. Their reminder app on their phone kept dinging because they had stuff to get done. Somebody else We'll take care of it. But look what the Samaritan does. Look at all the verb phrases that, he, that are in this story. He came to where he was. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured out olive oil and wine. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. He gave him money. He promised to come back and repay. Ten, at least ten active Verbs describing the behavior of the Samaritan. Neighborly love is active and it should prod us to use concrete action on behalf of those around us. See, when our eyes are are fixed on Jesus, our vision changes. You remember that solar eclipse we had a few years ago? Everybody got super excited about it? I'm guessing that was before I even knew Fairmont was here. I'm guessing I I passed it when we drove south on I-95 right around then on our way to Charleston. I must have passed exit 10. I must have seen a sign for historic Fairmont. I had no idea that I would be here. 
But man, I remember, and, and, and we, we ended up at home. We were, at, we were in my parents' backyard when the eclipse happened, and we made one of those little reflective things, right? Because you can't stare at the sun. Because even with the eclipse, if you stare at the sun, it, it'll, it'll mess up your eyesight. Or how about old TVs and monitors? Okay, for some of you young, young, some of you youngins in the room, we used to have this thing called screensavers. And it was moving images on the screen. And the reason we had those is because if you left one image on a screen too long, you would burn that image into the pixels. How many of you have ever been to an ATM and you can hardly use it because the, there's a ghost image burned into the screen of the ATM? See, when we stare at Jesus, that's what happens. It, it changes what we see. The image of who we are supposed to be gets burned into our retina. And when that happens, it's easier to extend patience to people around us because we see their humanity and we see their need for Jesus and their need for grace when they mess up. Because when we see Jesus who is perfect, it becomes more natural for us to extend grace to others who are imperfect like us. In other words, when we stare at Jesus... When we grow in Christ-likeness, we begin to see others the way Jesus sees us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who are the people that we tend to overlook because we're too busy? Because, because, because that, that agenda app on our phone keeps... Dingin. Who are the people that we overlook because, because, because we're a little too concerned about protecting our reputation? Or, or the people that, are, that, that, that we overlook because of the potential high cost of meeting their needs or because we fear that we don't know what to do? Right? Sometimes we don't help people because we don't know how to help them. And we're scared. Often we hesitate when people don't look like us or talk like us or come from the, the same place as us, geographic place, financial place, social place. But after we spend time truly beholding Christ, this miraculous thing happens. We begin to see them the way He sees us. The way He sees them. We find ourselves with compassion that that overcomes our previous fears or concerns. You know, it's easy to say those people aren't like us and then forego building relationship with them, but they are as in need of the gospel as we are. We aren't commanded to take the gospel to people just like us, but rather to take the gospel to Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Or, or maybe just the very ends of Fairmont. You know, we wouldn't be here if the early church had said, I'm only going to preach the gospel to people who are like me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm fairly certain that at this time, my ancestors 
were in Ireland and Scotland worshiping nature spirits in yew groves. Y-E-W, yew, like the tree. Not, you, never mind. But somebody came along and said, I'm going to bring them the gospel. St. Patrick was captured and sold into slavery in Ireland and served under a brutal taskmaster for years and years and years and runs away and then hears the call of God to go back and preach the gospel to the very people who not only were not like him, but who, if he went back, would put him back into slavery. And a thousand years later, two thousand years later, I'm really thankful that St. Patrick decided not to only share the gospel with people that were like him. See, sometimes we can be turned off by other people's brokenness, by other people's sin. We can look at it and we can say, <laughs> maybe we're turned off by it because they aren't broken and, 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 and struggle in the same way we do. Maybe, maybe we're turned off because they do struggle in the same way we do, and it's forcing us to confront our own brokenness and sin. But I don't know about you, but I am very lucky that Jesus did not look at my life and say, yuck, there is a mess of brokenness that I'm not going to deal with. Jesus looked at my life and said, I'm going to go to the cross for him. Jesus looked at your life and said, there is someone who carries and bears the image of God who I love and who I am going to go to the cross for. The very least that we can do is cross the street and bind up the broken when we respond to our own brokenness and sin by trusting in Jesus, it allows us to repent and seek forgiveness. It means that we get to recover and pursue God's design for us, that we get to sit and behold Jesus and grow in Christ-likeness. And this time with Jesus changes, should change, our perspective of others. And we begin to see them the way that God sees them and us. When I was confronted with my own sin and with my own brokenness, and I became aware of how desperately I needed a Savior, it became a whole lot harder to point to other people and how broken they were. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 100.